On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. I'm joined by the newly minted leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bacic. Ivana, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Gavin, and thank you very much for inviting me on the Not show. Not at all, today. and congratulations on your appointment this week. Um, today's Thanks. Red Sea poll in the Business Post has your party at 5%. Um, it is far from where Labour would like to be. It is far from where it would historically be. But that's the highest I think you've been in a Red Sea poll in two years. And I think it's been 2016 since the last time that Labour was at the lofty heights of even 7%. What are you going to do to turn that around? Well, I was certainly glad to see us increased in the poll today. That's obviously good news for us. Uh, but my And my focus, I should say, Gavin, now is on looking to the future, on growing the party, growing our base and growing our support. And I must say, I've been so heartened, especially in recent weeks, travelling around the country and meeting so many members, so many of our great councillors and area representatives. And I'm conscious that we have in Labour a real strength with our really the spread of our constituency membership and constituency organisation across the country and with the strength of our local membership base it was really evident in the Dublin Bay South by-election last summer when so many members came and supported me and supported our campaign in Dublin and we you know we really saw I suppose the the, the real strength behind Labour it's not just a, a, a party name but there's actually so many people like myself who've been members for so long and so many people newly joining too in recent weeks which is also very heartening and I think that's where we get our, our base from which we grow further So when you say you want to, to grow the party support them, what are you going to do to to try and achieve that? Well, what I want to do is, as I set out in my speech during the week, when I, um, you know, at our at our at the launch of uh, um, uh, on Thursday. Mm. What I said was, I want us to really put forward the strong message that Labour has always sought to put forward. But I think we need to express it very strongly at this time. And that's a message based in our core values of equality, of solidarity and of fairness. And it's a message that I think people showed there was a real appetite for in the by-election last summer. It's a message for change, for positive change on socialist and social democratic values, offering real change policies on housing, on childcare and elder care in particular, and on climate justice, where we see a real need for greater public investment, for greater state intervention. And that's really the core of Labour's belief system. And it offers, it, it shows that we offer an alternative vision for Ireland that's not the politics of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael on the one hand or Sinn Féin on the other. It's a different sort of change we seek. And it's a change that we see offered by centre-left and progressive parties all across Europe. And that's part, it's part of that pattern of change that we want to so offer. So you don't think then that those, those values, those visions of solidarity, equality and fairness are represented anywhere else in the political spectrum? I think Labour is uniquely placed to offer those values because of our strong history, because of our strong links with the trade union and organised labour movement. We're the political wing of the trade union movement and always have been. And also because we are an internationalist party. We're party, part of the party of European socialists. And indeed, we're a party that's serious about delivering change. We don't want to sit on the sidelines and shout. We want to be involved in a process of making constructive change. That's why I joined the party 30 years ago and I've stayed involved as an activist ever since. And when I go around the country when I meet members, I know that's why members join. And I know that's why people who think Labour uh, will vote Labour again. I mean, we've been, you know, I suppose I've been around long enough, Gavin, to know the party has had many ups and downs, but we've always remained a strong force in Irish politics and a strong influencing mm. force in Irish politics, even out of government. Yeah, well, there's definitely been been ups and downs, but it is worth just reminding people as well, because they may think that it was a little further away, that the, the downest down was only the general election two years ago. That's when the party was reduced to only six members of Dáil 
Iron, which was the lowest it's ever had. And it, it certainly seems that in the last two years, and certainly, well, I guess ever since Eamon Gilmore stood down and Brendan Howland took over, or Joan Burton even before that, that the party has struggled to rebuild any kind of momentum. And what makes you different? I think we're entering a different phase of politics. We've come through COVID, two very tough years. We're now facing the absolute horrors of the war in Ukraine and the brutal Russian invasion there. And I think that so much about what's happening politically now is, is I suppose, making us all see things somewhat differently. I think there's a much greater appreciation now of the role the state can and should play in delivering on services like childcare, like healthcare, uh, and on the need to really take up the very urgent and existential challenge of the climate crisis. So I think we have moved into a new phase of politics and I think it's a phase in which, a stage in which, may I say, a Labour voice is Mm. needed more than ever, that strong centre-left and progressive voice. Are there any other parties that you would at this point, even with the general election potentially being still three years away, any parties that you would immediately rule out from a prospective coalition that you'd take part in? Well, I've always had a track record of working collaboratively and constructively with parties and individuals on areas of common policy and common grounds. That's how I've managed to get uh, opposition bills into law in opposition, including bills on uh, on bargaining rights for freelance workers, which one of the achievements I'm mm. proudest of as an opposition legislator. Um, but at this stage, my focus is on growing Labour as a standalone party and growing our voice and our support nationally. See. And so, you know, while I work collaboratively with others, I certainly not considering any sort of formal alliances or pacts. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is because the last Labour Party National Conference, which was only in November four months ago, it did pass a motion calling for the party to build what it worded a common platform with others who share a broad egalitarian perspective. That to most people would read like forming some kind of, maybe not a, a, you know, a pre-government coalition, but some sort of electoral alliance at least. Well, I was at the obviously at the party conference and took part in the debates, and I think it's a great motion. But I don't think it called for anything like a formal alliance. I absolutely agree with the need to form common platforms on issues of common ground, and I think you know that's what we do. We do that as a constructive left wing party, and we work indeed with party. You know, I've been always careful to not to be denigrating or shouting just for the sake of it. I mean, where the Green Party and government are really delivering on environmental goals and important environmental policies, I think we need to acknowledge that. I want us to be a red-green party or green-red because the future is with environmental and social democratic politics, in my view. I think that's where we see politics going. So a common platform, absolutely, on different issues of common ground, but that's very different to any sort of formal alliance. Uh, well, you've probably touched on it there, but you, you maybe you'll have something more to add then to the next question, which is that... You you are probably, like many Labour Party members, you're probably sick to the back teeth of talk about the Social Democrats and whether there'd be any kind of alliance or, or a merger or some sort of collaboration with them. But just for example, because they would be the party that is closest to yours on the political spectrum, they are a party which literally describe themselves as Social Democrats, which is the, the description you'd give to your own party. What is your major point of difference with them? Well, we have many points of common interest with other parties, particularly parties on the centre left, and certainly we'll continue to work with them as as we've done. And you know, uh, they, you know, I've done that in the Shannon and in the Doll. Mm. And but, but it's are, not are there just any points of difference at all? I mean, you said you have plenty, plenty of common points of interest. Many people would struggle to find any departures between you. Well, it's funny because for many years people struggled, and people including me struggled to find any difference in policy between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So I suppose, mm. and, you know, and, and now look, they're in coalition the, together. So the, you know, mystery well, solved. And that, 
that itself was a seismic shift in Irish politics, of course, in 2020, albeit that they'd been effectively governing together from 2016. And indeed, you know, I and many others in the left would be highly critical of that 2016 to 2020 government mm. as having failed, failed to invest in the years of prosperity uh, pre-COVID, failed to invest in delivering the sort of housing stock uh, construction that we really needed sure. then and that we're sure. unfortunately but, but, reaping the But yourselves in the Sock Dems, what are the differences? If somebody is finds themselves in that part of the spectrum, they want to vote for a party that represents those interests. Why choose your party and not theirs? Well, my focus, again, is on building Labour, is on growing our vote and our support as a standalone party. So I'm not really interested in criticising other parties for the sake no, of it I, I, seeking, I or in contrasting us with other parties, Gavin. My priority is to grow our Labour voice and our Labour vote and our Labour support. We showed how that can be done in the by-election last summer, a by-election in which we were written off at the start, but in which mm. we showed the appetite for change, for positive change, and uh, through a Labour message of sure. equality and no. solidarity and fairness. So, you know, other parties have sim- may have similar messages or be similar to us on many issues. But, you know, mm. for me, it's about growing that Labour voice, no, that Labour support. And, and, but absolutely and I totally fair enough. Others. Yeah, but, but the, I, I, I don't think I was asking you to be critical of another party. It was literally just where do you depart? What, what are the points of difference between you and them? Well, as I say, that's my priority is on focusing on and promoting our policies, not on saying where they differ uh, necessarily or where other parties have different policies, but on what are Labour policies. And our policies are very clear on the need for public investment and services and the need for greater state in- intervention and for, you know, for that to be funded through, re- through redistribution of wealth. So we've we've clearly stated that we agree with the the principle of a fair and equitable system of taxation. Taxation, for example, of property, which is the biggest source of wealth in Ireland. So, you know, we're, we're putting forward a clear policy platform in Labour and that's our focus, is on growing support for that and communicating our message effectively. Okay. Um, you were asked at the press conference, in fact, by me uh, on Thursday about the, <laughs> the, uh, the role that, that you personally played in the coalition of 2011 to 2016. You were the party's leader in the Shannon at that time. So although you weren't in cabinet, you still had a role in shepherding a lot of that contentious legislation through the the upper house to make sure that it got onto the statute books. In your reply to me, you said that uh, nobody in their 20s now would have been eligible to vote in 2011. And and you summarised that effectively it was time to move on. I'm sure the party wants to move on. Pretty evidently, the party would like to move on from those days. Do you think the electorate have moved on? Well, first of all, I suppose, you know, it's we've now been longer out of government uh, than we were in that government. And of course, it was a government that while uh, the Labour ministers in it had to do things no Labour minister would ever want to do, it was a government that brought Ireland back from the brink of financial ruin and left office in 2016, leaving Ireland in a much better place financially. But I think what people generally want, what uh, every, people I meet every day, my own constituents in Dublin Bay says, people want is for us to look to the future, to look to the immediate crises that every is facing, that households are facing on the cost of living, that pe- parents are facing in delays in access to supports and places for children with disabilities, delay, you know, lack mm. of access to housing, to childcare, the climate crisis. These are the immediate and pressing needs and we need to look to the future no, they, in our and, policies. And, and they, they are absolutely, and, and people generally vote with one eye on the future, less less so much about, just about the past. Yes. But the, the, the reason I ask, and again, this is how I put it to you on, on Thursday, is because when Alan Kelly was standing down, he acknowledged that his own very personal link to that government of 2011 to 2016, he felt was still something of an inhibition, that the party couldn't break through or really detach itself from that period while he was still its figurehead. And I'm wondering how you could detach it when you were equally responsible for getting all those things through. Well, first of all, just to pay tribute to Alan Kelly, I mean, he's... he's 
uh, immense dignity in expressing his reasons for his resignation due to a combination of factors, as he said. And also, I want to just express my appreciation for all of his work, his commitment over many years to the Labour Party and to, in particular, the last two years as leader. And I also do want to thank him because he was, he's was he been so supportive of me and we've had some really constructive meetings to, to ensure a smooth mm. transition of leaders, which is not always easy halfway, you know. Yeah, um, well, it was quite, quite magnanimous of him to propose your nomination because it was pretty evident that he didn't want it to give the job up and he was pretty hard going to have done so. Well, he, you know, he, he, as I say, he made his resignation speech and made clear his reasons for doing so. And as I've said, you know, it, it, it wasn't certainly of a time of my choosing or making, but these things do happen in political life. And it's a tough, tough, business, tough uh, enterprise in politics, for sure, but a very important one. So I do want to just, you know, express that and put that on the record mm. that he's been so supportive of me. And I really am grateful yeah. to him for so, that. So back to the question of how you helped the party detach from that period if he couldn't. Well, as I've said, because I think at this time we are entering a new era, we're coming through, hopefully coming through COVID, albeit with very high uh, numbers of infections currently in the country. Um, we are looking at in the, internet, the horrific international context of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and I think people are looking for new ways of addressing the real crisis that, that everyone is facing and, and a really positive message of change mm. on, you know, a move on from what we're seeing currently being offered by government and a shift sure. to a centre-left form but, of politics. But, but, you know, We've already spoken about how how contested that marketplace is, that that wing of the political spectrum, and a lot of people might find it very difficult to consider voting for Labour again, given some of the promises that were made before the twenty eleven election. That even you know the party knew what it was getting itself into; it knew what sort of finances it was going to inherit, and still wasn't able to meet those promises. Well, you know, I think like so. one example is that you, you and I both had our baptisms through student politics in different eras or another. Yes. You know, you, you will remember that Rory Quinn stood in front of the gates of Trinity College in the days before the election of 2011 and signed a big cardboard pledge with the USI promising not to increase the student contribution. And by the end of Labour's period in government, it had doubled from 1,500 to €3,000. Well, as I've said, there were Labour, Labour ministers, and I think they've acknowledged that themselves, Labour ministers in that government took actions that they would not have wanted to do nor wished to do nor indeed had intended to do but I think it's well known that in 2011 when the outgoing Fianna Fáil government left office it was not still at that point apparent just how just how immensely um, bankrupted the state was just how appalling the state of the, so the they didn't realise how bad Irish they were going to have it I think they've gone on record saying that I don't think anyone entering government in 2011 knew quite how bad things were and as I say by 2016 the country had been pulled back from the brink of ruin. So, you know, there's there's a reality there to the economic context. There's a reality there to the fact that Labour, of course, were the smaller party in the coalition and therefore couldn't deliver on all of the policy commitments mm. we would have liked to. But we did, however, deliver. I mean, there, you know, there's some some things that were delivered on in that government that's important to acknowledge but too. Is, is that but to say that so, some of the pain that, that had to be visited on people in those those uh, years, would, that it was literally unavoidable? That, that no matter who would have been in government, that it, would, it was impossible to avoid some of those measures? Well, I, I think the reality is, again, that there were the previous government had created a scenario where there were uh, where the country was in a in an appalling state of financial uh, bankruptcy and you know when, again you know historians will i think uh, and political commentators will look again at, will look at that period and and I, and I think we'll see a, a true reflection on that but i do think what people are looking at now is the real crises that are facing everyone the crisis in cost of living with fuel prices soaring real worries about the war in ukraine and what that is going to do i mean look at the 
looking at the inflation predictions this week from the ESRI. I mean, this is really scary stuff. And again, looking back to my own baptism, I suppose, in, in student union politics in the late 80s, that was at a period when we saw this sort of level of inflation and again, worries about fuel prices. And, and so there is an, a sense that we really need to grapple with these very tough uh, issues that are facing mm. people now. And we need to offer real measures, really constructive ways of changing sure. our policies well, to ensure on, people's needs are met. On that note, then, a final question for you. you. You said on Thursday then that the solution to all of these things, rising fuel prices, rising price of, of cost of living, is to have a national pay rise. What do you have in mind? Well, I said it was one of the best ways to tackle cost of living crisis is to ensure that people's incomes will be uh, will rise. And what the best way to do that, I've put forward a number of ways to do that. First, to increase the minimum wage in line with inflation. But secondly, to strengthen trade union and collective bargaining rights to ensure that people can see their, their, their unions negotiating on a collective basis to increase wages and to, and to improve pay and conditions. And that's, you know, Always, that's the most, the real, the best way, the most effective way to ensure real and sustainable increases in pay to meet the cost of living. But I, this, you know, otherwise, I suppose, you know, it's clearly it's also important that we introduce targeted measures to support mm. those who are most affected by the cost of living but, rises. But you're not worried by, the, by an inflationary spiral if you put more money in people's pockets to meet higher costs that you only drive them higher again. Well, I saw the ESRI warning on that, and I think clearly we have to be cognizant of that. But they also did say that there had to be a balance and that targeted measures were necessary. And patently, if, if uh, for example, if companies are profitable, then there is a clear, uh, clear, I, I think, uh, incentive there. to. And we know, sorry, also that, you know, the, companies are finding it hard to employ to mm. hire uh, uh, qualified staff that there is that there are job shortages in many areas and so I think there is a real imperative there therefore for pay increases to be offered in targeted ways and the SRI I think in the small print have acknowledged that too. Mm-hmm.